You're listening to the Rewilding Earth Podcast. Rewilding Earth podcast is supported by businesses such as Patagonia, Catula, and Biohabitats, as well as the Whedon Foundation and listeners like you. If you love the work that the Rewilding Institute is doing, please consider donating at rewilding.org. And be sure to sign up for our weekly newsletter while you're there. Ecologist and author Carl Safina explores how humans are changing the living world and what those changes mean for wild places and for human and other beings. His work connects broad scientific understanding of a moral call to action. His writing has won the MacArthur Genius Prize, Pew and Guggenheim Fellowships, book awards from Lannan, Orion, and the National Academies, and John Burroughs, James Beard, and George Rabb medals. Safina hosted the 10-part PBS series Saving the Ocean with Carl Safina. He holds the Endowed Chair for Nature and Humanity at Stony Brook University and is founder of the not-for-profit Safina Center at safinacenter.org. Carl lives in Long Island, New York, with his wife Patricia and their dogs and feathered friends. Carl's most recent book is Becoming Wild, How Animal Cultures Raise Families, Create Beauty, and Achieve Peace. It's about culture in non-humans. Um, in other words, you know, other animals. Some, some other animals have culture. What is culture? Culture is the things that we learn in our social group as we're growing up about how we live where we happen to live. And um, there are many, many things that are cultural about humans, but there are also quite a few things that are cultural about quite a few other animals, about what constitutes food, where food is, how to get food, when to find it, what, what, what is the right way to court a mate, where the different things in the territory that you need, shelter, cover water, how to um, catch and handle certain kinds of prey. All, all of those things are often learned from adults, learned from elders. And of course, we, we learn our own culture from the adults around us. I think that's really cool because uh, it seems that humanity has a little problem with how to view the other species we live on this planet with in terms of their value intrinsically and also to us, um, both in good and negative ways. And I know that's something that you've been concerned with all of your career is, is the wild world, but also humanity's relationship with it. That is a, I guess it's not saying too much to say it's a rocky relationship, right? That would be an understatement. (laughs) Um, sure. Yeah. And I've, I've been very lucky to be very close to quite a few wild animals in many wild places, uh, often right around my house and, you know, in my, my own region in a surprisingly developed area to be talking about wild places. I live on Long Island, New York. I, I live in the suburbs. I, I was born in the city in Brooklyn, but there are always wild things around and I've always been oriented to them. So, I've been able to see them. And of course, if you live on Long Island and you have access to the shoreline, there's uh, there's the whole watery world that comes to your doorstep, more or less. And, um, you know, I, I experienced all those things very, very locally. I still experience quite a few things that have to do with animals, 
very locally. But then I was a, I was extremely fortunate in my life to be able to really branch out and travel and see many, many different things in many places as well. Do you think that our relationship with the uh, what you call in the book Realm One, raising families, and and it's about sperm whales, um, that watery realm. Um, the only real access that most people seem to have to that is through gigantic production budgets like National Geographic and, and other things. Um, other than being fortunate enough to live in places like where you live, it seems a lot fewer people have any like direct access to that compared to being able to go hike a trail, go to a national park, things like that. Um, does that hurt? It seems like if if the only source of information we can get is not a direct one, does that hurt um, the relationship that we have with that water realm in terms of protection and conservation? Well, I would say yes and no. I mean, there it's a matter of it's a matter of looking, and um, I mean, a lot of my work has been done in and around water. A lot of my recent work has been done very far from water. Um, we have a bird feeder outside our kitchen window. We, we enjoy watching the birds every day. It's, it's a matter of looking and a matter of scale. There's plenty to see all around at, at any scale if you're, if you're willing to look. Uh, but on the other hand, m- most people don't have the time to really watch. And that's another way that I have been very lucky because I made that my career. So I have made part of my living sitting in bird blinds and watching seabirds during entire breeding seasons for quite a few years in a row. And I've spent a lot of field time with people who were studying everything from whales to wolves to salmon to um, chimpanzees. And... Um, macaws in the Amazon rainforest. The, those people are, you know, among the very small handful who really get to be well acquainted with some other living things on the planet and really watch them. My last book, which was called Beyond Words, I spent some time with some of the great elephant researchers and Cynthia Moss, who's been studying elephants for longer than I think longer than anybody who's focused on their behavior. She said that it, after about 20 years, she started to realize what signals they were keying into with each other. Now, if it takes 20 years for a human to observe that, that should suggest to us that most of us have absolutely no clue about the mm. lives of other animals because we don't have the time to put into it. But it's happening it's happening to them. That's how yeah. they live. And, you know, the only animals we really have an acquaintance with tend to be our dogs and our cats. We get to see something about what they're capable of and how they really live, even though they live a very artificialized life with us. But at least we see something about their personalities, their emotional capabilities. But for, for essentially every other living thing in the world, most people have simply no experience with it. I, I picture people coming out, um, you know, people who have that real direct experience for decades. And they're the most passionate, of course, for the protection and speaking for the elephants, for um, whatever 
wild critters that they are privileged to be able to study, that that's the that's the pinnacle of passion. Um, they have that direct experience and then they have to come back and maybe, um, um, ask for money, uh, for their foundation, for, for their continuing work, their research. And in a world where people don't have that time, they have dogs and cats maybe. And, and then they, we just live in this world without that time. I wonder what that has to do with the situation we find ourselves in today. And you being one of those people who have been able to, one of those very few, to have so many direct experiences in so many unique situations, maybe you could speak to that. Um, first of all, what's it feel like to have that and then come into this world where people just don't seem to have the time always to listen to deeply to what you're trying to tell them? Well, what it feels like to have that is it feels like um, a, a very lucky life a very I've had a very fortunate existence and I get to sort of parachute into some of the best situations I can even imagine with the best researchers in the world and learn everything that they have to teach me in the time I'm with them it, it's just um, really quite incredible and often very very beautiful and um, totally wondrous as far as then coming back, I mean, asking people for money to continue the work is by far the least of it. The, 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 the most important problems have to do with the fact that there are just a lot of people who are making decisions that are very damaging to wild things in wild places and have no, no idea what they're harming or no empathy at all for not only wild creatures, but often for people themselves. I just read an article this morning in Scientific American magazine about the the people we call pygmies in Central Africa and how they existed with animals that they killed for food for many thousands of years in very high abundance. The, the animals existed in very high abundance. All their food plants existed in very high abundance. They never had any problems. They, they loved their life. And then um, logging companies came in. The, uh, the, the, some of the big conservation groups tried to make deals with the logging companies to leave some areas uh, off limits as national parks. Roads went in. The, the loggers tremendously simplified the forest. They started shooting animals for food. Settlers came in along the roads, poachers came in along the roads. The people who were trying to enforce the national parks were trying to evict the people who had always lived there with a, a tremendous abundance of animals and plants. It's a total catastrophe. Um, you don't have to convince tribal people about the value. They probably wouldn't even understand the question, the value of of wildness or or of mm -hmm. wild animals it's it would be like asking us about the value of sunlight it's it's what they have it's how they live it's it's um, in many cases it's who they understand who they are there are there are many many um aspects of the kind of life that we're all part of that are impossible for them to coexist with um, because there's just no 
no concern, no empathy at all. And it's, it's not just animals that we're talking about. It extends very much to the people in those places. It's, um, we're in quite a situation right now in the history of life on Earth. You're listening to the Rewilding Earth podcast. Did you know we also publish insightful and inspirational content from leading rewilding scholars, poets, artists, and organizers from around the world? You can visit rewilding.org and sign up for our weekly digest to receive brilliant, fresh insights on everything rewilding. You'll find over a decade of articles and news from the front lines of wildlands protection and all kinds of restoration efforts. Check us out at rewilding.org, and don't forget to share it with friends. Your article uh, in Medium um, from March 15th, How Wildlife Markets and Factory Farms Guarantee Frequent New Deadly Diseases, COVID-19 is a wake-up call, don't hit snooze. Can you talk a little bit about that? In recent years, we've had an accelerating series of epidemics that have erupted through our broken relationship with the rest of life on Earth, people going farther and deeper into wild areas, eating animals that they used to not eat, it, killing lots of monkeys and uh, even even eating apes, farming wild animals that don't normally exist in the same place and having them all up against each other. These All of this stuff is just a series of giant test tubes for viruses that don't normally inhabit humans to have constant contact with humans so that when there is some change or some evolution, they, they can begin to start infecting humans. And some of them are exceptionally dangerous um, and, and quite lethal. Some, like, for instance, there's a, a thing called simian immunodeficiency virus that infects uh, apes and monkeys. It doesn't make them sick at all. It doesn't give them any immunodeficiency disease. But the slight twist on that that became human immunodeficiency virus, virus causes the disease AIDS, which um, until for, for several decades, until the most recent drugs, AIDS was a total death sentence. Everybody who got it died. It, yeah. it wasn't that easy to transmit. You needed intimate contact with people. But there have been others where it's a lot easier to transmit. The one we have right now is very easy to transmit. Luckily, it's not that lethal. It, it only kills about 2% of the people, 2 or 3% of the people it infects. But 2 or 3% for something that's very easy to catch is millions of dead people. And um, that's why we have the total upset of uh, you, you know, everything that we do, our, our ability to be social, our, our jobs, our businesses, commerce, uh, art, everything is being completely upset by the fact that this particular epidemic reached pandemic proportions. Luckily, some of the others, which were much more lethal, like Ebola or Marburg uh, or even um, swine flu, or uh, SARS, they weren't as, they were more deadly, but they weren't as easy to transmit. And three quarters of the new diseases that are infectious come directly out of uh, new contact with, with wild animals. 
or with or with um, these really intensifying farming techniques, these factory industrial farming techniques. We're just creating these tremendous virus laboratories where the viruses are finding ways to infect human beings. And there, uh, every every person who studies viral diseases says that there will be more of these coming because not only are we not eliminating the root causes of them, but we are intensifying the causes of them. And a lot of that has to do with the tremendous mistreatment of the natural world and of uh, and of other species, whether they are wild or farmed. How likely do you think it is that one day in this giant test tube uh, experiment that's being run on the planet, that the ease of transmission of something like COVID and something like the uh, Marburg virus, which has a kill rate of 25 to 80 percent, I mean, is that also in the cards somewhere in our future if we don't change? Well, yeah, it's a, we're just playing a roulette game with that. It's only a matter of luck that this this most recent pandemic is not very lethal. But um, I think all of us now have friends, I'm trying to think, all of us now probably have friends who have family or family members or friends' family members who have died from COVID. And that's at a that's at a lethality rate of only three percent. But if we had something that was killing one out of every five people, I mean, it would be like the Black Plague. It would be hitting every household, and you'd have to stay inside for uh, you know, unforeseeable amounts of time. I don't know. You know, maybe maybe a couple of years. Who knows? The the fact that we have this one, which we're sort of muddling through, and and the that it, it it is not very lethal is is just it's just luck that it that it isn't killing a much higher percentage of people that it's killing the next the next one that becomes a pandemic i mean imagine if ebola became pandemic ebola was killing something like you know 80% of the people it infected in some of the places it it had broken out we can't really afford to fool around with this and we are very much fooling around with it because our relationship with the rest of the world is broken and there have been epidemics and pandemics for many centuries but but the rate is accelerating because our penetration of the rest of the world is accelerating and our connectedness around the world is near total do you think there's a difference between Choosing to do something about this to protect ourselves, our species, humanity, and choosing to do it because it's the right thing to do for the way that we're treating and the way that these things originate and the way that we treat other species on this planet. Well, clearly it makes a difference because people don't seem to care enough that they exist in miserable conditions. I mean, no matter, no matter why you want to get the job done, the job either will get done or we will have more pandemics, likely more deadly ones. I, I have this theory that there was some place, some clue we were supposed to get as a species that was going to tell us that we belong here, that we are from here, that we are all connected. And a lot of people know those kinds of sayings and, and, and have heard those things before, but we've certainly carry on as if 
we've never heard those things before and we've never had that feeling on a hiking trip, a river trip, or uh, it's more of a, a user situation. Humans use this planet rather than feeling as if they belong here. And given that there's so much lip service that's been paid to that, and a lot of people love to put that on social media, it sounds great. Do you think that something like this, what we're going through now, is going to have a material, make a material difference in, in certain things going forward? What are you hoping for in this point of reflection that humanity's forced to find itself in? Well, what I'm hoping for and what I think will happen are unfortunately two different things. Um, a lot of people I know, anyway, have the luxury of being able to you know, reflect on the fact that we're throttling down and we're slowing down and we're spending more time at home. And there are good things about that. Uh, luckily, many, many of the people who are feeling that way are not the people who are who have lost their entire income very suddenly. And there are a lot of people like that. I know a lot of people like that. I, I wonder if they have the luxury of seeing any silver linings. But those are the silver linings that I see that spending more time at home and not flying all over the place, um, they're, they're, they're good and there are instructive things about that. It would be nice if we got out of this, this disease situation and took some of the nicer things uh, about the fact that we, we don't have to be running all over the place and driving everywhere constantly and flying everywhere constantly, that we can get along quite nicely at, um, you know, a lower speed and lower intensity and trade, trade that intensity for more beauty and more attention, being with loved ones and family members more of the time. Th those, those would be good things. But we're in a big system that at at the moment i mean it's only it's only stopped working for a few weeks it's it's nowhere near you know losing its ability to fire itself right up again and i think probably what will happen is it, it will fire itself right up again and people who are desperate for any kind of work will probably take any kind of work that they that they can get so i i don't i don't expect that there will be major changes that come out of this if we come out of it kind of soon. If it, if it becomes a situation where there are chronic flare-ups and lots of, lots of lockdowns or, or we sputter along where we try to get back to normal and then we have to go back into hiding, I don't know what will happen. I mean, one of the, one of the things about this whole situation that generates the most anxiety is that literally nobody knows what is going to happen. Well, what about the core issue? I have I have a little more hope about the wet market situation, but then I see these differing reports where China, it sounds like in one report, is definitely doing something about it, shutting down wet markets. Then I find out we have a ton of wet markets here in the United States, and I didn't even know really that much about what a wet market was until, certainly not as much as I do now, until this but it seems like that, at least, is the most obvious thing that we could stop doing. I would hope so. I, this, this term wet market is so ridiculous. I, I don't have any idea where that term came from. I don't either. It just but, sounds gross to me now. They're, they're, live an, they're live animal markets where animals are killed and handed to the customer. I, I've been in places like that. And it's, it's a matter of scale. You have a place like uh, 
China with over a billion people and this being a very common way that people get food, we're talking about a tremendous number of animals in a tremendous number of places. We're not talking about a, a few live chicken markets in, in um, Brooklyn, New York or something like that. Not that those are great places and not that I condone those chickens are living a short, miserable life in those places, but that's not where these diseases are being generated. It's, it's, it's what's happening at a larger scale. And for a variety of reasons, it would be good to not have any of those markets. For a variety of reasons, it would be good to not eat any farmed animals. It would, it would also be good to not be eating um, lots of wild animals out of these forests that we're destroying. So, and the factory farms that are, you know, unfortunately the more normal situation in our country, the United States and many other countries, they, they have had their share of new diseases coming out of there as well, like, you know, like bird flu, swine flu, SARS. They have not come out of wild animal markets. They've come out of factory farming situations. I mean, look at the result right now. The, the entire human race is basically at a halt because people wanted to eat some wild animals in China. That's, that's not a good enough reason to shut down the entire human race. It, it, you, people didn't have to do what they did that caused these problems. And these problems were predicted. Books have been written warning against them. The, the other outbreaks that were stamped out, that they stamped out after they killed a bunch of people were fair warning. This is another major warning, and we don't seem to be very good about heeding warnings, but hopefully this one is going to be the one that does make us change some things. Tell me a little bit about the Safina Center and um, what people uh, should pay the most attention to when they get there, when they check you out at safinacenter.org. Well, we, we're mostly sciencey people. We're not all scientists by training, but we're mostly sciencey people. We're interested in conveying things that are true facts about nature, but not we're not about information. We're, we're about the information and an emotional connection to wildness, to wild animals, to what nature means in our lives, what nature means out of our lives, what it means on its own terms. Our work is to, is to make creative products, things you can hold or share like books, photos, films, sound art, paintings. We, all, all, these are the kinds of things that the people at the Safina Center, this is what they're doing. They're creative people who are trying to connect us emotionally to the natural world. I was just talking about this uh, kind of thing with a, a, a guest just yesterday. <laughs> we were talking about it's, it's one thing to be sciencey, as you say, and then just you know, spill information out there that it, it seems to me, because I am I lean toward that. I've been reading the sciencey stuff and trying to translate that to other people who are not so sciencey for quite a long time. And I I read it and I get it. Uh, other people look at that as, as not just 
indecipherable sometimes, but even a little preachy, which is weird because it's not. It's just information. It's just data. Well, we've been spitting out data for quite a long time, and we're still where we are. I mean, we find ourselves here today. So obviously there's a problem with that. And we talked about yesterday art and music and, and storytelling and things are so important. It seems like that's really a core fundamental part of what the Safina Center is all about. Is there anything you can share with us about an example of how some of this stuff works? The, the things that we produce are often, they often become best-selling books or they win awards. We've, we've won some of the highest kinds of awards you can win. We, we have a string of best-selling books out. So that approach does reach a lot of people. Um, and I know that people not infrequently will write to me and say that, something that we've put out has changed their life or made them want to change the major that they are studying in college or, or, or do something different in grad school or has affected how they view things at work. We, we do touch a lot of people. And I, I know that if we simply put the information out there in the form of reports, it would not touch a lot of people. People filter information through their values. You, you have to speak to people at the level of their values in order to have a conversation and engage them. I, as a science person, I find information alone convincing. I, I look for information. I find information persuasive and interesting. Most people don't act that way. And any system delivers on its values. It does not deliver on information, delivers on its values. By paying a lot of attention to the, the values and the emotional content that we use as the conduit for the information we're trying to come across, I, I think is often more successful for more people. I, I think that helps us too. Those of us who work in the movement, and that's a very big chunk of our listeners here uh, on this podcast in some way or another, executive directors, activists, organizers. Um, we also really cherish people like you who help, um, even though we we can read information and, and, and have the same reaction to it and, and value of it that you, that you just described, but it sure is nice to read stories. And it, and, and it sure is fulfilling and, and it kind of keeps us going. I know this for a fact. <laughs> so thank you for all that you do and, and for having an organization that helps to put more of that out into the world in a really big way, um, because it's not just the people we need to convince. That's a really big deal. And it's a big job that must be done. But it it is also taking care of the um, what I guess I would call the essential workers of the conservation movement, the people who, um, you know, have really dedicated their lives to this. So Thank you for them, from them, I'm sure they would all say. Yeah, thank you very much. That's very kind, and I really appreciate that. Somebody's listening to this podcast. They're thinking, all right, I've, I'm going to read uh, uh, Becoming Wild, and I'm going to um, check out safinacenter.org. What do you want people to get from that who are listening to this, thinking about careers, or maybe they want to change something that they're doing, readjust for the information that's coming out in the world now? 
maybe around pandemics and our relationship with wildlife? Well, nobody can do everything. So the, the enormity of all these problems and everything um, often makes people feel paralyzed and they don't know what to do, but everybody can do something. So just pick something that you can do and do that and think about what you'll eat, who you'll vote for, what you will buy, what you will invest in, what you will drive, what groups you will join, what you'll talk about with your friends or on social media, what you will throw away, what you'll do for a living, who you want to be, and, um, and how many kids you want to have. All, all of these things are decisions that we essentially all make, but they're, they're different for each of us because we're different, you know. Um, Somebody with enough money to invest can think about what they'll invest in. Somebody who doesn't have any money may just think about what what kind of food they want to eat um, and think of it at a different level like that or or who the, or simply who they'll vote for. Sage advice. Carl, thank you so much for taking time to be on Rewilding Earth today. I really appreciate it. Well, I really appreciate it as well. So thank you so much for having me on. Thanks for listening to the Rewilding Earth podcast. We do what we do because of you. This podcast is supported by listeners like you who long to live in a wilder world. Please consider donating at rewilding.org and subscribe to our weekly news and article digest while you're there. To go the extra mile, you can follow and share Rewilding Earth on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Bonus points for sharing this podcast with your friends. To listen to past episodes, go to rewilding.org slash pod. That's rewilding.org slash pod.